Broadcasting from the beautiful Hill Country in Texas, this is OneRadioNetwork.com. Well, that handsome gent you just saw on the slide is Fred Jashevsky. He's in the green room, and uh, he thought it was still February, so that's why, <laughs> that's why we're a little late this morning. He's, I called him up and I said, Fred, he said, is it March? He said, yeah, well, it'll happen when there's uh, 28 days in, in February. I often wondered if people were born on February 28th and they only, they only get older every four years. That's, that's kind of great. What a, that's a great concept. Hi, my name is Patrick Timpone. Never mind me. I just babble along. And it is the 1st of March on OneRadioNetwork.com. We have a lot to talk about with Fred. And then in a couple of hours, we will go to New Zealand and speak with uh, uh, Mark and Samantha Bailey. They're both physicians. Dr. Mark Bailey uh, created an entire white paper evidence-based uh, um, lawsuit in New Zealand uh, saying that we want you guys to had, uh, had show in, in court that there is no virus, there's never been a virus. Here's a 75-page paper with uh, hundreds of uh, sites, you know, what do they call those things? You know, addendums, you know, the numbers things. And it's a, a well-constructed. And we are going to ask him the first thing out of the box and, and his wife. Is it possible that you can actually create a virus in a lab that's being promoted by the Republicans now? They're going to go for China. And uh, it's all over the news. This is the new one, uh, the lab leak. And they want to blame this thing on China. Is it even possible to create a virus, quote-unquote, in a lab, put it in the air, and people share it with one another? Is that even possible? You'll be surprised at the answer. So this kind of ties into our first question with Fred Deshesky, and uh, we will bring him in and say hello. Well, happy March, Fred. Happy March. Hey, happy March. <laughs> happy March. Yeah, so I kind of caught that it was March, but I... You know, oh, yeah. Wednesday. Okay, so yeah, March 1st, Wednesday, yeah, it's showtime. Well, this one's on me. Wednesday in the morning. My first question for you, I'd like to get your take on this. We've had several shows uh, over the last couple of weeks uh, on this Russia-Ukraine thing. Tom Luongo, Martin Armstrong, Pepe Escobar, a very well-respected journalist out this morning about this coming war with Russia and China and hot war with the United States and NATO. If this would play out as many are predicting, you know, can you conjecture, Fred Jaschewski, real world of money guy, what this would do to the dollar? Well, if you it know, happens. it's really interesting. If, it um, if you've noticed what's been happening is Russia has started to accept the Chinese yuan yes, sir. as a form of payment for a lot more of its goods and services. Um you know, this seemed to me to be an inevitable byproduct of the U.S. and the West putting pressure on Russia. So we impart sanctions. You know, we basically try to lock Russia out of access to Western banks. And we basically force them to find financing elsewhere or to find ways to sell their products and services in other terms, in other currencies. Mm-hmm. So although they've never really allied themselves, you know, China and Russia have sort of battled for power um, and not work together. But I think what's happening is, you know, we're almost creating an environment where it's the enemy of my enemy is my friend kind yes, of thing, right? Sun Tzu, right. the art of war. So 
by default, Russia is now leaning more on China and saying, hey, listen, if we were able to sell a lot more of our internally uh, domesticated products to you and accept more of the payments in the form of the Chinese yuan, this would benefit both of us. And we could effectively align ourselves and sort of counter against the pressure that the West is trying to apply. So I'm not sure if uh, the Western bankers were aware or recognized the political ramifications of what happens when, you know, Washington, D.C. makes a decision to try to squeeze Russia for what they consider to be legitimate reasons. You know, they don't like the invasion of Ukraine. They want to put pressure on Russia. So they apply these uh, banking pressures. And by default, what's Russia left to do? So it can push back as much as it wants. You know, we know we stand strong. But by default now, uh, what we're finding is a little more alignment between China and Russia. The more that that develops, you know, China has been trying very diligently to get its Chinese yuan to be more representative in the world's economic environment. And it doesn't ever quite get there. There's just too much concern of the way China runs its government, the fact that it's a communist nation. So there's an awful lot of pushback. And the dollar is, is the big guy on the block. And, it, it, and the dollar is still the big guy on the block. No. And, um, yeah. you know, I, I hate to put it in simplest, simplistic terms, but effectively we're supposed to be the good guys and the communists are supposed to be the bad <laughs> I know. guys. I, you know, I understand. That line is so blurred right now, I, I don't think that makes much sense. But <laughs> that being the theory, uh, we are by default creating an environment where there's a lot of pushback against the dollar. So, yeah. you know, this does put strain on the dollar's ability to sustain itself as a world's reserve currency. And if we, by default, accidentally create an environment where, you know, more and more countries start saying, hey, you know, the West, you guys are being overbearing and we're not happy. And even though it's not a great opportunity for us, maybe we'll consider some alternatives just because we're aggravated with the way that you're acting. And you don't want to do that and create a situation where, by accident, uh, we create demand for currencies outside the U.S. dollar, because, you know, we've talked about this over the years, that my concern about the U.S. dollar's reserve status is the fact that we've strong-armed people into that position. But if that begins to slip, it creates a serious problem for the U.S. dollar that it tends then to become recognized based upon its own internal uh, numbers, mm. and they're not attractive. Well, you know, I think you're, yeah, you're, you're being like a little Nostradamus here. I mean, we mentioned it, and I, I've been following it, that uh, Iraq is doing a deal with China, Fred, for their oil in Yuan, which is un in Yuan. In, unprecedented. I mean, they went in to, you know, to kill whatever, Saddam, because he even thought about it. Now, 23 years later, they're doing it, and uh, the West is not going to, you know, they're not going to do anything about it. And we're creating an environment that's making this happen, yeah, which is strange. that's what's crazy. Right? That's what's crazy. Right. Yeah. So we sent boots on the ground, you know, American troops, and fought in order to prevent these types of things. And then politically, we end up making the same mistakes that create the same environment we were trying to avoid in the first place. So, yeah. you know, there are the two forces at play. You have the political forces, the, the brain power in Washington, D.C., and whatever they decide they think is politically appropriate. And then you have the financial world, which has to sort of address the results of these kinds of decisions and what impact it has. So, mm. you know, the dollar strength is relative to that perception 
that it's going to remain the world's reserve currency and the perception is subject to change that's baked and in, little the, by little, in the prices right now is that what you're saying fred big picture most believe that the dollar will remain the king you know, king of the yes dollar. yeah yes which makes I sense i think we will fight like with tooth and nail to make sure that we sustain the dollar's reserve status uh, because again it's terrifying to consider what would happen if that were no longer the case but it, if you just pick a way to a way at it like uh, iraq is depegging from the dollar also saudi arabia and then china russia iran and you know the BRICS the thing BRICS. yeah if you just pick a way at it is there a moment in time uh, you know I, I don't understand where it would be not be the reserve currency or is it just something that just kind of morphs and changes and then a little bit of yuan, a little bit of rubles and whatever. Sure. Well, you know, we could start to slowly lose right. uh, that position and it could be a subtle thing that happens over time or there could be a tipping point. It could be a geopolitical event or it could just simply be um, enough people align themselves against the dollar that suddenly it just doesn't hold up. Yeah. Um, I think the former is more likely it just seems like it's unrealistic to presume that an overnight event is going to change something that's been ingrained for so long. And I don't think if it came to there was some recognition within the West that the dollar's reserve status was in jeopardy, that we would not take extraordinary actions, whatever that would mean, whatever that would mean. to support the dollar's strength. Yeah, yeah. Fred Jaszewski with us. Our phone line is out on the 800 line. We got that freeze apocalypse in there. They're still working on that. One of the lines broke. Uh, so just email. We have a couple of emails already. Patrick at OneRadioNetwork.com. We're live here on, on March the 1st. So uh, Martin Armstrong said, first thing out of his mouth uh, last week was, in 40 years of looking at this, he's never seen so many world leaders intent on going to war. I mean, he... He's very, very concerned, and uh, so is Luongo, who was on yesterday, and other people. So, um, can we t talk about, would, would this mean just a tremendous amount of borrowing by the United States to, to do this, if they get into a hot hot war with these guys? It'd be, it'd be big, wouldn't it? The amount of money. I'm sorry, if, if we get into war, well, or if... Well, we, NATO, the United States is, NATO is the United States, so... If the United States has a pony up with, who knows, two, three, four, five hundred billion dollars, what would that do for us dollar users? Well, you know, here runs the fundamental problem. So every time we end up in a war environment, you know, uh, and I love they come out with the estimates. You know, this war is going to cost a trillion, and yeah, it ends right. up costing <laughs> eleven trillion or a hundred trillion, and you know, um, they never seem to get the numbers right. So there is a massive cost to war every time we enter into it, it tends to have a serious impact on our economy and it forces the Federal Reserve to come up with more creative uh, methods to try to deal with the onslaught of the fact that we're bleeding money in areas we didn't anticipate. So, you know, Congress is probably going to support whatever efforts they deem are politically expedient and that right. means that they, they will. will, right? So they'll agree to uh, additional spending, obviously with money we don't have. So from a cost standpoint, you know, war is very profitable for the people that do that as a business. You know, the, the, the methods of making money uh, tied to war have existed, you know, since the early days of the Republic. 
it's very profitable for certain er businesses to be in a war environment. But from a national standpoint as a country, it costs us a fortune and it requires additional spending to come from funds that don't exist, which means, you know, a weaker dollar going forward, increasing the amount of national debt. And it just, again, forces the issue where we're already in an environment where we really don't have the flexibility to take on that kind of debt. We will do it. I, you know, I'm sure the money will not stand in the way if it is determined that it's politically expedient as a NATO resource to get behind and support whoever politically starts to become a problem. Um, I worry about it from a financial standpoint, but, you know, geopolitically, we are in a very weird environment now where a lot of the old rules are sort of not holding up. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's, it's troublesome. And I can understand how, you know, somebody who intelligently is looking at the world geopolitical situation they come to can this reach the conclusion that it is yeah. very volatile yeah and any you know any day we could see something unravel very quickly yeah and there's also of course politically they excuse me they, they would like to uh, you know have people support a president in the country during a wartime it's always good politically right it's always good you know sure as crazy as it is it's all it's 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 always good. Well, but every every war that's you know that has happened since I've been around, so we're going back to you know all, all, starting from Vietnam and going forward, wow. there have always been a segment of the population that has stood against it, and sometimes sure. it was just from that you know the the peace concept we just rather would have love than war, and sometimes it's from a uh, political position to say you know like the Bush wars we could argue that there was no legitimate reason to have entered into them. And there was a political pushback. I think in this instance, in the modern era, because of the way information transfers so quickly, and everybody has an opinion, and everybody has a microphone, you know, everybody has a broadcast, everybody has an ability to put their voice out there, mm -hmm. there would be an awful lot of pushback for any uh, movement forward to try to move into a war environment in the United States. So uh, it'll be very interesting to see how that plays out. I hope it doesn't come to that, but you know we're creating a, a very, a very unstable environment, and the more that that's the case, the more likely it is for something like this to occur. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking at the the Federal Reserve balance sheet. I just pulled it up, so I'm curious about this. Um, total on the balance sheet, Fred, is eight trillion four hundred and fifty billion, right? And this is what Treasuries and we still have those mortgage-backed securities from, from from 15 years ago. They're still sitting on the balance sheet. You notice that? Yeah, it's amazing. Huh? Amazing. Two point five trillion MBSs that they bought from the banks. Right? Fifteen. Which years they ago. can't sell. No. What are they going to do with it? I mean, you know, you could try to place those onto the open market, but you're not going to find sufficient buyers. So, you know, again, the more of this debt that the Fed has to hold on its balance sheet and it cannot liquidate or chooses not to liquidate. Like, you, you had raised the issue, sure. we had a quick email back and forth. Right. You know, can, can they, the can Fed they do take that? a 30-year, yeah, yeah. can they take a 30-year bond and just simply let it expire? You know, hold on to it for 30 years and not deal with it. Well, you know, effectively, if they try to play that game, the problem is, is that the largest percentage of what's in the balance sheet doesn't go anywhere. It remains on the balance sheet. And the point of this is, is that when the Fed wants to put money into the economy, it buys bonds from the Treasury. Yes, sir. And this is how we create additional liquidity. So if we want to put money into the system, 
the Federal Reserve goes ahead and aggressively buys large quantities of debt instruments directly from the U.S. Treasury. Yes, sir. The reverse is supposed to be the process to unwind that. So if the Fed is going to sell bonds into the open market, this is effectively their method of taking money out of the system. But if the Fed isn't going to be able to sell the bonds that it's carrying on its balance sheet, and it's simply going to lock them up and carry them to fruition, to maturity, they're not really reducing the liquidity. They're not sufficiently dealing with the problem. And you they're said just that, sort of that lowers it. their credibility, where countries look and at Not it. only that, but it, but it effectively does the opposite of what they intend to do. So hmm. when you put money into the system or the Fed buys bonds, it's trying to lower interest rates. When the Fed is selling its debt instruments, it's trying to raise the rates. So it's effectively got a couple of tools to try to fight off economic movement. And right now, the, the prevailing mentality from the Federal Reserve is the economy is going to be moving forward aggressively and too fast. It's creating inflation. We need to slow that down. How do we do that? Well, we, we raise interest rates or we use other tools that the Fed has, which is this selling or buying of treasuries. But again, if the Fed is going to get stuck and can't liquidate the massive volume of debt that it has, it's effectively not able to reduce the money supply the way it would like to. And that will create other problems going forward, and it exacerbates the size of the issue. And the bigger it gets, the harder it gets to deal with. So I have a real issue with the idea that the Fed could simply say, oh, the hell with it. We won't try to sell any of we'll our just debt. Leave it. Let them expire. We'll just hold yeah. all of it to yeah. maturity. Well, yeah, sure. Good luck with that. And 30 years from now, we'll be sitting where we were from the 1990s, where all the debt we didn't get rid of from then, you know, is now due and payable. So what are we doing with it? And like you said, we're carrying debt for mortgage-backed securities and debt instruments. Since 2008, we haven't reduced and keep in mind that the amount that we've accumulated in additional debt from the Federal Reserve's balance sheet since 2020 has grown so vastly, it's been the largest increase in their in their debt holdings in, in history. So if they haven't been able to sell the stuff from 1999 or 2008, how far out is it going to be that you and I are still talking in, what, 2050? And we'll still be dealing with the stuff that we did during the COVID crisis of twenty the 2020s. So on this balance sheet, help me understand, we have changes from the weekend at February 13th, minus $44 billion. Changes for February 23, minus $536 billion. So did they, these could have been ex expirations or sold. Did they sell $500 billion worth of stuff? last week that's what they're saying yeah so they're beginning to unwind some of it some of it you know i've been watching the bond auctions each week you know and so this uh, is stuff guy. excuse me the, so i understand fred this is stuff that they've sold the 500 billion or do we yes, know for sure it from their balance sheet which means it either matured they or they've sold it oh we don't know for sure what is which one. no uh, the thing i question is is that i've been watching the weekly bond sales and they're generally between 30 and 40 billion dollars a week so if they've sold five hundred billion dollars, that's what worth it says. Five thirty-six. Okay, to whom? Well, you know, who had five hundred billion dollars to buy debt instruments well, yeah, off exactly. the balance sheet? Exactly. Who? Nobody's what entity has that kind of money? I don't see any central bank stepping up and saying, "Oh, I want a half a trillion dollars sure. worth of U.S. government debt that's paying an interest payment that's going to be less than the new ones coming out that I could buy and hold for six months." <coughs> 
pardon me. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And and I've been trying to raise this question for a year now, is what entity exists on Earth large enough to support the unwinding of a couple of trillion dollars worth of debt off the Fed's balance sheet? And no, you know, they don't it's exist. It's really strange. Right? Yeah. So so they could be cooking the books or letting stuff expire or. We don't know for five hundred billion. That's a lot of money. Five hundred billion. I'd really like to see the the numbers of what the, whether those were purchases or expirations, and if they were purchases, who made those buys? Who stepped up and purchased that volume but you, of debt? But you, as Ron Paul said, you can't audit the Fed, right? There, you cannot. They're, well, they're, you know, unless Congress decides to allow that you know open market committee actions are all under the table and you know most of what the fed does is behind the scenes and you know they have an obligation under congressional law to report to congress once or twice a year and that's about it you know but that's crazy the man behind the curtain we don't even know who it is or what it is or where it's doing we just don't know i mean you know, Jerome Powell is interesting. He's admitted yeah. flat out that they've printed money to, to solve problems, you know. He actually has said those words. And, and it's it's a nice kind of uh, change to hear something that clear and specific coming out of a Fed chairman, uh, especially when you, you remember what it was like when, you know, like Bernanke was the best at it, the yeah. Fed speak. I think he created that expression. You know, he would talk for an hour and people would scratch their heads and say, what did he say? So Powell has been a lot clearer about this. But uh, I, I do have uh, kind of an interesting kind of question about how they will continue to do this on their timetable, which is they're saying they're going to try to unwind about a half a trillion dollars a year off this debt or more to somehow bring down this balance sheet to something more nominal. Again, I just don't know what entity exists on Earth that can absorb that kind of quantity. You know, I just looking more carefully at this, which I should have done earlier. Um, it look it says three seven six billion. They've sold uh, Treasury securities, so they either sold those or they expired. We don't know, right? We don't know. We don't. And it's interesting if you create money for a living, you don't even care if it expires. It's all the same to you. It's just it's madness. Well, it's, again, a lot of this, unfortunately, now is really perception. Yeah, it's so, just all perception. It, you know, Man. we have fundamentals that are at work, but if if the perception of the dollar's relative strength is challenged hmm. um, it's it's hard to support it you know and I I will I will say it's not like this at all but take a look at like the cryptos is a perfect example you know they may operate on these values and then suddenly something comes out that questions the the you know reasonableness of the current value and they plummet you know they lose 20 percent 30 percent 60 percent overnight yeah why is that? Well, because there's no fundamental support and nobody can justify the price tag. Well, you know, the U.S. Treasury is facing a similar issue that we have to decide how comfortable we are with the way we're managing the debt. And at what point do people start to question the reasonableness of a country that's carrying $31 trillion worth of debt, not able to repay any of the obligations that it's been holding for decades? adding more to it every year at a faster pace and now having interest rates going up um it's a strange environment and i just see all of this as a byproduct of allowing debt to be created because we don't have sound money so if we could get ourselves back to sound money we could get rid of all of this gobbledygook is that even possible though i mean can you even get there from here 
Well, I mean, even you know, if you wanted to, could they even do it? <laughs> they couldn't sustain it. No. They couldn't. You know, Congress would have to make so many fundamental changes. I mean, it would just be like giving somebody who's had access to a credit card they never had to repay for years yeah. suddenly make them make the payments every month. You yeah. know, it's going to be a shock to the system. Uh, I don't think they can sustain yesterday it. Yesterday, the, the, the subject uh, came up with central bank digital currencies from a listener with Luango. And and he he's more on the, on your page than you think with this one because he said and he's right and you've said it why would they do it you have the dollar that you can do whatever you want with it and nobody knows what you're doing you can't audit it why would you do a central bank digital currency what other than control if you wanted to control Fred buying a pizza if he had high cholesterol and all that stuff but. Well, you know how this works, right? Technology is always promoted on the convenience. Yeah, right. It's the convenience versus easy. the privacy issue. Yeah. So the ease of doing something tends to outweigh people's concerns about, you know, either the reasonableness or the privacy issues that are involved. And I'm sure they could sell it. I, I'm sure. Oh, I think they could, too, if they wanted. Right? They could come up with a great pretense to convince people that we need to move from paper money to a digital currency. And again, my concerns, I think I've stated pretty clearly, are twofold. One is the lack of transparency and how much money now as, as uh, a nation actually exists within our economic circle. How much money is there if it's all digital? How do you pull up that sheet you look at on the Federal Reserve's balance sheet, pull up that data and investigate this if it's all digital? We really don't know anymore. We don't know how rapidly the expansion of monetary supplies are happening because it's impossible to judge without the printing of capital that we can count. And then secondarily, which is just as important, and I mean, I put these things on equal ground, is that financial situation where absolutely zero privacy exists in a digital world. Every transaction from the purchasing of a pizza to buying a mortgage is visible to the government entities. And does that lead to what social control by yeah. virtue of knowledge yeah. i mean you know i i hear frightening things like you know the ancestry.com i've, I've concept, heard about that right? yeah i've heard about that okay so you can you know send in your samples of your dna and they can track where right. you know your ancestry well google bought ancestry.com i know google now owns all of that information so in a world of surveillance capitalism that we already have existed in, <laughs> we're now adding the fact that they now have knowledge of the DNA of everybody who chose to provide that uh, information. Where does all this lead to? I well, know, the next it's I mean, We had a fellow on, Fred, and he's going to be back on, and he's going to show people how they can copyright their footprint and their fingerprints and their eye scan and their wow. DNA. And you can actually do that. Copyright your DNA so they don't own it. <laughs> yeah, amazing I mean, that you have to. I mean, it's amazing that you have to, right? Yeah, boy. Uh, here's an email for you from Steve. I've heard Fred and form, former, formerly Andrew Goss talk about debates in the early 1900s where popular economists could not agree on what money a dollar was. <laughs> what I, money I think is. Maynard Keynes was involved with the debates. Does Fred have a, uh, have a source where we can read up on, on this? Thanks for the show. Yeah, how would people learn about this? And Andrew used to talk about it, right? Early on. They couldn't even decide. So, <clears throat> yeah, um, to learn about what a dollar is or to learn about the conversations that took place during those eras? I guess maybe I'm not sure if I knew something. what the question is. Yeah, what they, they were just, I'd like to understand better what this was and is and 
what happened and who is who is debating and things like that. Oh yeah, well the conversation has come up. I think it was in an economic forum, and I will go back and see if I can find yeah. uh, the time frame that that occurred and see if I can come up with the uh, the quotes that came out. But yeah, it was pretty interesting. I mean, <laughs> you know. It would be like asking, a, you know, a scientist, what is gravity? Right? You figure they could come up with a straight answer. There's a simple response to that. It's a, <laughs> it's a mathematical issue. They could describe it. They could describe its properties. But when it came down to saying, okay, what is money? And it was such a strange question to be able to pose because it seems on the outset to be something so simplistic. I know what it is. We should be able to define <laughs> what money is. And... You know, I hearken back to the idea of when the United States first separated from Great Britain and the founding fathers had that kind of conversation about what money should be because they wanted to establish something as money within the new country that would be safe and protect the public and prevent political influence and prevent bankers from manipulating currency to the detriment of the public. So they spent then, in the 1780s and 90s, a considerable period of time having this conversation. What really constitutes money? And in the end, they said, okay, here's our conclusion. You know, if you have a system of money that's backed by something that's physical, tangible, uh, it's portable, it's transferable, it's sustainable over a period of time, it doesn't deteriorate, it can be cut into small pieces and put back together, uh, it, it can retain privacy, it can be physical, you know, it seems like there's good protection there. And it's something that if it's made out of something that is very difficult to get, that not everybody can just, like carrots, you can't grow them in your backyard, you know, it'll provide a system of currency uh, that will protect wealth going forward. And it worked extremely well. Mm -hmm. And that concept should have held up. In fact, you know, again, they included it in the Constitution because they wanted to prevent where what what we're getting now to ever have become an issue which is are we going back now to have to even define what money is like how did we lose that concept we defined it in the 1790s we know what a dollar is we came up with specific weights and measures to say this is a dollar here it is straightforward very simple easy to understand nowadays our convoluted methods of conducting commerce are so far removed from sound money that we actually have to go back and try to consider what is money and it's interesting that economics has gotten so difficult to understand that even the experts themselves have a hard time agreeing <laughs> what money and is. that's why some people are arguing you know this is a, a conjecture they don't know who knows that even the bitcoin thing that's at a deep level was was these people were involved in it you know the the people that control the big money people just to get yeah, people used I, to it you know i wouldn't surprise me i mean i don't know about you know i've heard i've heard you know things nothing like i could say i've i've concluded is real but i have definitely heard stories coming from people that suggest that there is somebody behind bitcoin and that you know if the public knew who that was they would <laughs> run from it like you know like crazy yeah. so 
They could wipe uh, out know, a whole again, bunch of money if they of, wanted to, right? Oh, man. Right. Ooh, boy. You know, we're in a world of everything is a conspiracy theory today. So yeah. uh, I dismissed a lot of these things until there's some more substantive information available. But, you know, it's interesting that we even get to that point yeah. where people question The that. challenge is that uh, what is a conspiracy theory today, six months from now, is, cause it turns out to be a fact in many cases. And that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a problem. This is interesting. Uh, yesterday on Patrick's show, Tom Luongo was very big on getting pre-65 coins. He really liked those. So I'd like to ask Fred, is there a minimum, good question, is there a minimum amount that Emily and others can call you and get some uh, pre-65 coins? Is there a minimum amount that you can do uh, that? With our company, it's about $1,000. I just can't uh, really do orders less than that just because the time frame involved in shipping and everything like that, which we tend to pay for. Right. So for from us, it's about $1,000. There are a lot of local small coin shops that will, you know, happily deal with smaller quantities for those that may not have that kind of capital. But, um, you know, for most investors, that's not a lot to, to even consider. Most people spend 10 or 100 times that much easily. And I think they should have a percentage of the wealth in this form. And I think people should be, with both hands, grabbing mm. pre-65 silver coins right now. Yes, sir. I think the silver price is so heavily manipulated the London Market Exchange, the COMEX Exchange, when you really start digging into the numbers, it is really, really strange that we're in an environment right now where, I mean, the clear suppression of the price of silver is so overwhelmingly obvious right now. I mean, look, JP Morgan was fined almost a billion dollars for manipulating the price of silver. That's how blatant it has gotten. When, when did that happen? And how did they do it, Fred? When when were they fined a billion? And how did JP? It was about a year ago, uh -huh. and uh, it was $920 billion. And they got their hands caught in the cookie jar. <laughs> they were using options and futures contracts and manipulating the price of silver. Wow. And, you know, when you look at the commodity exchange, COMEX, and the London Metals Exchange, these are the two theoretically largest holders of the metals in the world that provide all of the metals for all of the ETFs, all the exchange traded funds, and everything that involves the silver markets mm -hmm. uh, in in non-physical silver that is supposed to be supported by actual silver to support these contracts. And the supplies versus the amount of paper out there don't add up. Just don't know. And it's very easy to short a market and to pressure a market down if you use enough money. So, you know, imagine if you had a small amount of capital in your own personal investment fund and you decided to short the silver market, you know, it's not going to have a big impact on the world's market. But now imagine you're a hedge fund and you have $500 million and, you know, for every six or $7,000 you spend, you can control $100,000 worth of silver. Well, at $500 million, you can pressure the hell out of a market and short a market to the point where it becomes very difficult to see an appreciated price. Mm -hmm. So I think there's more and more of a separation as we move forward between the price of silver and the value of silver. I don't think the price of silver reflects its true value. $21.14 this morning, right? I'm not buying it. Yeah. I, I, I think mm -hmm. it's seriously suppressed. Mm -hmm. And the problem is, is that a crack in that market can become apparent and we've seen what happens when those things show up, where silver skyrockets to $40, $50 within a matter of a week or two. And it just seems to happen so quickly and people are shocked by it. Well, when you have that kind of a short position out there and a market starts going up, you can get short squeezes where people have to buy rapidly to cover a short position that's so overwhelmingly large, 
It's either buy huge amounts or watch your position go into default. Large purchases will be forced to happen more and more frequently as the manipulation gets greater and greater. But I'm convinced right now that the separation exists between the value and the price of silver. The price is not reflective of silver's actual value. And then when you look at the pre-65 coins, I think this is a massive opportunity really? right now because they're selling some, right? for... Good time to get some. It is. The premiums have been reduced to a point where they're very tight right now. Hmm. They're barely selling for much more than the metal that they're made of, yet they can't produce another one and haven't made them since 1964. Why are the premiums that low, I wonder? Well, we've settled to a point where the supply-demand characteristics of the flow of that physical product has evened out hmm. to where we're getting enough movement back and forth, and enough big players are both looking to sell some and buy some at an even pace to where the premiums have been reduced to a point where they're much more reasonable. Hmm. We had a couple points last year where there was an, uh, kind of a, a lopsided uh, supply-demand problem, and dealers were afraid they couldn't replace inventory. And so those that held silver were charging more and more for what they had because their concern was they would have to pay a lot more to replace the inventory if gotcha. they sold it. So, so the gap got pretty wide between what dealers were paying and what they would sell for. But that is somewhat resolved now to a point where the premiums have been reduced. And we're back to what I would consider more normal levels, which makes it a great buying opportunity. What's the advantage of a pre-65 coins from you, 1,000 the minimum, and somebody buying, going online and buying like 10-ounce silver 10 ounce bars. bars and stuff like that. What's the, what do you think? Well, what's I, I think the, there's two distinct advantages. I mean, the last time I looked at 10-ounce silver bars, they were selling for about 20% over metal. Uh, you know, I mean, the premiums were pretty stiff. So it would be like... Uh, premiums on dimes and quarters like or... Two th I'm sorry, 20, so 10 times 21, right? Plus twenty percent. So you're looking at like two two hundred and sixty dollars okay. for a ten ounce bar. Okay. Plus twenty. Twenty one dollars silver. Right. right. So you pay about two hundred and sixty dollars for it. So that's about twenty percent over the metal price. Okay. Almost thirty percent. Okay. Um, you know, sometimes they're a little cheaper, a little bit more here and there. But the premiums on the silver coins are actually about the same, if not less, and they can never make another one, which means that that premium percentage can change more rapidly where the reason we see the premiums on the silver bars right now is just because they can get it, but it's not necessary to be there, and it may or may not sustain itself, but if you're selling silver bars, again, you're lucky to get spot, you know, barely. Sometimes it's even a little bit below. Really? But with the pre-65 coins, you know, we have the, the legitimate fact that this is legal currency, but I'm encouraged by the idea that there is that fixed supply, and I've always said... What do you think would happen to the premium on a 10-ounce silver bar if somehow they came out and we were able to say, you know, we can't make any more silver bars because we've mined all the silver on Earth, and that's it. We're done. You know, whatever silver bars are out there now, that's all that ever will be. Well, I think the premiums on them would explode, and, and within no time, it would be 100% over their metal value. Yet, we have these pre-65 dimes and quarters and halves that have been around for 60 years, and they're carrying, you know, smaller premiums than a silver bar that's being mined today. And every one of those silver bars that's mined today is the same as one mined 20 years ago. And ones that will be minted 10 years from now. They're all identical. And the pre-65, uh, excuse me, is a private 
transaction and the bars are not, correct? You have paperwork. Well, that's the other thing. Yeah. You know, the government has obligated us as, as dealers in the metals industry to look at these products differently. So they rule the bullion world. It is a commodity that they control like any other commodity. Mm -hmm. So that means that they obligate me without choice to have to file 1099Bs with the IRS whenever someone sells me bullion and make me follow anti-money laundering rules, you know, to get to know your customer nonsense and obligate me to know that money people spend to buy silver comes from legitimate resources. And if it should turn out at any point in the future that someone bought silver and they used illegal money to do that and I sold them these silver bars, well, now I have facilitated in money laundering just like the refiners in the United States were accused and legitimately accused of doing that for the drug cartels who were importing gold from South America into the United States, buying this gold they knew was coming from drug money hmm. and facilitated billions and billions of dollars in sales of gold bullion from drug cartels. This is part of the reason the government began to regulate that market. Their intention, as they put it initially, was to curtail drug cartels using gold and silver bullion as a way of raising capital and you know moving money between nations privately. So they regulated the market. So all bullion transactions are federally regulated now, and who knows what they'll do in the future, but I would seriously doubt if the regulations would get softer going forward. Yeah. I think they'll get tighter. And of course, there's always the, what I think is unlikely but there is that, that possibility that always hangs out there of confiscation, you know, the actual determination again by the federal government uh, to say to American citizens, we determine now it's illegal for you to own bullion products and we regulate it to a point where we make it an illegal commodity. They've done that before in the past. Right? I don't think they would. You know, I, I, I don't see them doing that again in the future per se. I don't but think they get they away could. with it. Yeah, they, they, they could. So what about silver dollars? I'm curious, um, are silver dollars, um, lots of silver in it, like the quarters and halves, past 65? Because we don't talk about silver dollars. They're just dimes, quarters, and halves, right? Uh, the only reason, and again, silver dollars are interesting because they're an example of exactly what I'm talking about. Okay. They used to have the same minimal premiums that dimes and quarters and halves currently have. Halves do carry a slightly higher premium. But silver dollars, production ended 30 years before the dimes and quarters and halves. Oh. So it's we stopped making silver dollars in 1935. Oh. And we made a lot less quantity of silver dollars than we made in the quantity of dimes and quarters and halves. There were a lot more, and I mean a lot more, like 10 times more dimes, quarters, and halves produced than there were ever minted in dollar form. Hmm. So what happened... The dollars now carry about a hundred percent premium over their milk content for the lowest quality, cheapest, you know, run-of-the-mill common pre-1935 silver dollar. There's about 0.77 ounces of silver in a silver dollar, so figure roughly three quarters of an ounce. Right. So with twenty-one dollar silver, what is that about eighteen bucks or so, yeah. roughly? Right. But you can't touch a silver dollar for less than about thirty-five dollars. Whoa! So there's only. $18 worth of silver, but you got, it costs 35 bucks to buy one. Yes. Just because of limited supply. Because it's, exactly. it's a numismatic so thing. That, that premium separated itself from the halves, quarters, and dimes. Interesting. And that only happened in the last 15 or 20 years. Right. Up to that point, 
they were identical. So now, in 2023, the past five, six years or so, half dollars are starting to carry just a little bit more premium. Uh, and the same reason, huh. it just turns out that we minted less halves than quarters and dimes. So More halves than dollars, but between the quarters, dimes, and halves, the halves had the slowest, uh, the lowest minage quantities. So in 35, did they just start putting funky uh, metals in there to replace the silver? They actually didn't produce a silver dollar at all. They didn't produce a silver. Wow. No dollar coins until, until 1971 when? were minted. Oh, till oh, until Nixon took the whole thing off the gold standard thing. Oh. And then the Eisenhower dollars came out, which had no silver content, <laughs> no with the silver. exception of the ones that came out in proof of insets. <laughs> how can you print a current? How can you print a coin with no silver? I mean, come on, what is that about? That's what we do now. That's what we do now, right? These coins, what are they made out of? Like a quarter now? It's just nothing. Well, well you know the copper and and, and uh, trace metal stuff, but mostly nickel and copper, cheap oh. metals. Because, you know, copper still sold by the pound, not by the ounce. This is from Ashton. She said, Fred was talking about the cryptocurrencies and, and digital currencies. Isn't most of the, the dollars already digital now? What would be the difference? Well, that's a good point. I mean, what did Andy used to say? I don't know what it is. 96, 97% of all dollars are just computer digital. clips? Yeah, just computer yeah. clips, right? Well, she's right. I mean, we're moving closer and closer to that point where it is almost all digital anyway. anyway. But at this point, we still have that physical cash. Right. You know, I could still get piles of physical cash and conduct commerce with them. Um, the, again, uh, the issue becomes it's still open at this point to the point where we can count those dollars. If we go 100% digital, it may not change a lot in terms of the percentages of what's being traded. But it does make a significant, significant fundamental change. Yeah. And because, course, again, now you have a totally, yeah. totally trackable system. Of course, a CBDC would be different from just having uh, $10,000 worth of blips on your Chase, Chase bank account. That's one thing, the way it's transferred and all of that. A CBDC would be a whole thing through the phone, and they can take it out of your account. I mean, it's a big idea what they keep floating, right? It's, it really is. Yeah, it, you know, I, I am seriously concerned about the uh, ramifications of what happens in a system like that where you're turning over complete control of a currency system to a government we're not <laughs> supposed to have that i mean <laughs> congress was given the authority to uh, you know regulate money and the value and establish the value of money but to put the hands of the the citizens of a country into its congressional leaders and give them all of that information and control, uh, I, I just have a real just Orwellian not, concern just not good. about where, what that leads to. Just, just, just not good. Fred Yashevsky's here. Our phone line is out because of a, a ice storm that we had. It was about two or three inches of global warming. It was kind of fun. Uh, you wow, can, you can, like yeah. 80 degrees here today. Uh, oh, yeah. Well, yeah, it's like 80 here too, but this was about 10 days ago. And it, it and broke. You're still having problems. Yeah, well, it broke uh, the the line that comes in on our machine. Uh, just, yeah, the ice just gets up there and crunches it down, and so. Oh well, um, let's see. What else did I have my notes here? I want. Oh, okay. Did you? I saw a thing this morning where bankruptcies in the United States, Fred, are the fastest pace since 2009. People are really U.S. U.S. debt amongst the public. Oh, wow. is, I think it's like $5 trillion now. It is the highest it's been in decades. 
people have apparently you're talking about excuse me, on credit, credit cards. cards and all this stuff and pennies and gap yeah. and all that so five trillion dollars just hanging out there highest it's been in decades no. so the percentage of americans who are struggling and living off of you know credit card uh, debt yeah. is growing yeah and that is a bit disconcerting you know, plus it looks like the Supreme Court's going to shut down the idea of reducing those student loans. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. that may not. What fly. do you think about that philosophically, from a, your standpoint? Do you you think we uh, the people should should pay for these things? Yes. Do you? Okay. Yes. Take out a loan, pay it back. You know, I, I get it that in some cases there weren't a lot of options, but you know. Oh, you I'm sorry, I misunderstood. Do you think we, the people, should pay for these kids' loans? You're saying they should pay. Oh, no. back. Okay. Okay. Oh hell no. Okay, I misunderstood. Yeah. No, no, I'm sorry. I, I'm saying the other way. I, I'm saying those that are obligated to a loan <laughs> because pay. they chose to take yeah. one have to pay it back. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was, I so realize that's, that's an unpopular position, but I'm sorry. You know, I'm, I kind of believe this. It goes two ways. If you're going to say that you want your sovereignty and your independence and you don't want government interference, then you can't turn around and say, well, I want to borrow money from you when I need it. But then I want to be able to turn around and say, oh, well, I shouldn't have to pay this back. And, you know, it's the sense of entitlement. I I, am, I understand. I have a real hard time with it and <laughs> I disagree with it philosophically. But the Supreme Court is in agreeing with you. They, they're saying they're the kids, leaning that way. They're, they're leaning that way. That you got to pay the stuff back, kids. Well, I think what they're saying is that they're going to take issue with the way the government wanted to do it. Okay. So, in other words, they're finding like a legal stand to say, you know, we're not going to necessarily say you have to pay this loan back or you shouldn't pay this loan back. What we're going to say is government doesn't have authority to make this decision to wipe out this debt because there are people that are owed this money. Mm -hmm. And why shouldn't they get paid? You know, it, it it just isn't right. What is this? And I understand the problem yeah. with you know students take out loans. It's like they bought a mortgage oh, man, without owning a house and have to take twenty years to pay it back. But listen, I worked through college. Sure. You know, I worked thirty hours a week. Uh, I made sure that whatever money I borrowed, I paid back. And you know, I I had a almost a full time job going through school because I needed the money and knew that if I didn't have that, I'd have to borrow money. I accepted that responsibility. So, I don't know. I just come from that sort of school of thought that uh, I don't believe that these students should be able to simply dismiss these loans uh, just because it's become a national political issue. And, you know, yeah, great rally point for sure. particularly Democrats vote to for get me. behind. Yeah, vote so, for me. You know, vote so for me. And where does this money come from? It, it has to enter the banking system somewhere. Like I go in, get a 400000 loan going to UT, where does that money come from? It's created at the point you sign that mortgage document. Oh, yeah. Right? That's, that's how the money is created. Yeah, that's so how that it's money created. that you borrowed doesn't exist. Who creates it, a bank or the Fed? Well, the Federal Reserve does, because what does what happens is, is that note becomes a debt instrument, legal debt instrument. Yes, sir. And as a defined legal debt instrument, the key is you're allowed to borrow against it. In fact, you can borrow 90% of its face value instantly. So if you go borrow $400,000 from your local bank and they write a mortgage and you sign that document, they immediately can take that $400,000 document and borrow 360000 against it immediately. Yeah. And then take that 360000 and loan it out at interest. And they keep doing and it, right? They keep doing it over and over again. It's like ninefold that they can do this. And this is how money enters into the system 
in rapid fashion. But there's an obligation there to be repaid. Now, in the old days, a single bank held your single mortgage and they looked at you and said, is Patrick a viable customer? Can he pay this is thing? Is he likely to make the payments back? If the answer was yes, they write you the loan and they, that bank, were responsible for that amount. And if you didn't pay it, they were on the hook. But in the modern era, these banks sell off these debt instruments to financial institutions who acquire huge amounts of these mortgage obligations and then resell them packaged to various institutions across the world, pension accounts, hedge funds, <laughs> money managers all over the world, individual counties around the country buy them. And as you've noted, the Federal Reserve, in a lot of cases, ends up as the default buyer of these mortgage-backed securities. And of course, in 2008, we learned a very valuable lesson that Wall Street got very smart and said, hey, not only do we have these mortgage-backed securities, but what if we leverage them as a security and created another security credit default swap right? cds right wow yep and here we go now we have a brand new instrument we can sell that effectively is quote unquote backed by real real estate which was all wonderful and good as long as real estate prices were climbing but then when the market reversed and started going down all of a sudden all the underlying value of these paper certificate notes weren't there and we've effectively had the big margin call, you know, where it was just you've borrowed a half a million dollars against the property that's now only worth three fifty. We have a problem with that. So you either have to put up the extra buck fifty, or we're gonna call in the note and you have to pay it off immediately. Mm -hmm. And if you can't, you just defaulted on your mortgage, we own your house, and whatever money you've paid up to date is gone. Uh, here here's a good one. You'll like this one. Uh, from Chicago, Jeremy. Thanks for having Fred on. Where does he think mortgage rates are going? We're considering buying a house, and uh, is, are they going to go down or up, or does he have any idea? Thanks. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think it's baked in the cake. They're going to continue to raise interest rates, right, on banks? I think so. Yeah, they're um, going to continue to do that. So this has been kind of interesting. We've had some really good economic news the past couple of weeks, and it has been good economic news, right? The economy is moving forward a little more quickly. A lot of people getting jobs that were not available a lot of people going back to work. Now, of course, the weird part about this is that we started from zero, you know, after COVID. Yeah. <clears throat> Pardon me. You know, we shut down the economy after COVID, so we have zero movement. So everything going forward there looks positive. Yeah. And we had tons of people, obviously, that were out of work. But now people are getting jobs again and starting to come back into the workforce. So the jobs numbers were fantastic the past couple of weeks. And people see that and say, well, if we have a good economic environment, people going back to work, that translates into the economy is going to be moving forward quickly, and that leaves the Federal Reserve sort of in the position where they can't stop raising rates to fight the inflation problem. You know, if the economy was truly slowing down, then the impact of the rates they've raised so far would be taking hold, which is what the Fed wanted. They wanted to see the economy slow down. That was the reason for raising rates, because that's how they fight off inflation. They're not getting that. They've raised rates numerous times, but we're still getting great economic growth and tons of people going back to work. So the translation there is that if the Fed is going to see this going forward as saying, that means we can't stop raising rates right now. The economy is still too quickly moving forward. 
that means that the raising rate system is going to continue out for a longer period of time, and that translates into a dollar that looks more attractive to foreign investors, and it competes with, let's say, for example, the price of gold and silver. Because as great as gold and silver are, there's one thing they don't do, which is pay interest. They appreciate in value over time, but they don't pay interest. Hmm. So if you're looking at higher interest payments on the dollar instruments, because the Fed is going to continue to raise rates, well, that's going to make that attractive to investors. So I think rates on mortgages are going to continue to go up. I think they'll go up slowly, but I think they're going to continue to creep up because the Fed's not going to stop raising its underlying rates for quite some time. And a lot of people were thinking by the beginning of this year, the Fed was going to not only have stopped raising rates, but they were going to reverse the whole process and start lowering them because they didn't want to choke the economy into a recession. And now everybody keeps looking at that going, well, it seems really unrealistic that the Fed could stop raising rates that quickly. Yeah, Powell's not talking so now like it looks he's like, going to slow. Yeah, he's not talking like I don't that. think so. No. I think we're going to continue, keep seeing rate hikes through at least the next six months, probably through the end of the year, which means it won't be till 2024 that the Fed could even consider so beginning to lower then to Jeremy's rates. question, you could have mortgage rates at 10% or something possible, huh? I mean, sure. you should probably just I get mean, the house now from, if you're going to do it, right? Where we gone? We've gone from three, uh, 3.7, 3.8. We're up to six, six and a half. 30-year fix. I don't see that slowing down. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think it's going to you know, jump rapidly, but I wouldn't be surprised if we're closer to 8% within about six months. Are these mortgage, uh, monthly mortgage rates because, excuse me, the monthly mortgage payments because of the higher rates, are they really uh, squashing down the have you looked at home sales? Or is that is that still starting? Is it starting to, to slow down? Or oh, it's slowed down considerably uh, from the last year or two. But prices seem to still be climbing in most areas. That's crazy. They're just climbing more slowly. Hmm. So you know, everybody is sort of in this mm, odd position. If you're trying to decide what to do, we were in a clearly a seller's market for the past couple of years. If you own real estate, it was great. I mean. I was watching properties here locally. I may have mentioned this. It would come up for sale, come up on the market. Someone would buy it, immediately turn around and relist it without doing a damn thing wow. and sell it for more money. Wow. And that would happen two or three times over. It just kept like happening. Like the good old days, right? Like the good old days. Yeah. And that's come to an end. So that's Has stopped it? now. You so know. we've already seen the first slowdown. And the housing market, like here locally, is really problematic. I mean, the Isn't houses are continuing to go up, and it's forcing rent increases at a higher pace than we've seen before, and a lot of people are getting squeezed out of the market. It's becoming very difficult for people to afford rent anywhere in this area now, mm. and that wasn't the case before. Rentals were always reasonable, but now we're at the point where because the real estate prices keep going up, it's so much more expensive to buy a home, a lot more people are looking to rent squeezing the supply and demand characteristics and rents are going up considerably in this area and i think that's probably the case around most places in the country i know real estate is local but as far as i've heard from people i speak to all over the country they're all experiencing the same thing real estate has not really stopped going up it's just not increasing quite at the pace it was let's say a year or two right. ago i read an interesting article out of austin and a lady who's a real geek who looks at this stuff she claims 
this is just one report, but she, she seemed to be pretty knowledgeable about it, that there's a lot more property available in Texas than they're putting on, that things aren't just quite as cool as everybody thinks. As they're raising rates, there's a lot of people still are not getting the money for what they want. Does that make sense? Um, it does. Yeah. Um, I don't know that market in your area yeah, well, I so I, I yeah. can't speak to that, but I wouldn't be surprised if that were the case in different parts people of the country. People just keep raising it even though nobody's buying them, right? Because they, they, well, sure. they think you know, they you can. You take the right? shot while you can. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> you don't get these kinds of market environments. I mean, I was talking to a real estate agent yesterday. Um, you know, historically, I remember the general concept for a long time and probably at least 20 years of my life anything under 10% mortgage was considered cheap. Really? That was considered cheap money. You know, that was uh, that was considered a very good rate to own a home. Mm. And then when rates got down to, you know, 4%, 3.5%, we had an unprecedented buying opportunity that was just such an aberration. I don't know we'll ever see that again. But uh, I do think the trend is going to be slightly higher because I just don't see the Fed slowing down the rate hikes anytime soon. Mm-hmm. I hear all of these various commercials on uh, Austin radio stations about about different re- retirement accounts and and getting gold involved in it. Can you can you kind of talk about that? That our listeners can do something with their four hundred one ks and all these things and get gold involved. How does that work? Well, I don't do that um, okay. because it, it prevents the one thing that I'm the biggest fan of, which is the idea that the customer is getting the physical gold yeah, and silver. They get it, right. Yeah. In those retirement accounts, there are programs available, but you don't end up with possession. There are storage facilities, for example, that will move uh, retirement accounts, like an IRA. There are the golden IRAs, they call them. Mm-hmm. And you can shift your IRA to a banking institution that will allow you buying uh, one form of gold specifically, the American Gold Eagles or Silver Eagles. That's the only form you can buy. And it is stored for you in a facility. So some of the retirement accounts will allow those types of programs. The only other possibilities for people are gold and silver ETFs or paper contracts because again, a 401k, you don't own that product physically that 401k is hosted by your company. And the company has all of your assets and every other employee pooled together. They may allow you some flexibility and things that you can invest in, but they will not let you take physical possession of a gold or silver coin. So there are some options for people within retirement accounts. Some of them do involve physical metal but none of them involve the possession of that metal by the individual investor. Which is a big deal, possession. Well, you know, by default, it's sort of like how I look at the bars. Uh, My position has always been better than nothing, and I would say the same thing when it comes to retirement accounts. If all of your wealth is tied up in these types of retirement programs, and you don't have outside capital to be able to buy physical gold and silver, you know, I don't think it's terribly wrong to consider doing some of these types of programs to own, even if it's tangibly, uh, some form of gold and silver within your uh, retirement accounts. I think it's a good idea. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Here's a good one for you. Uh, Abby, she is in San Antonio, San An- just down the road. What can Fred tell me about reverse mortgages? My husband and I were both uh, 65. We're thinking about doing that. Can he tell me the upsides and the downsides from Abby? 
Hmm. Well, you know, the upside is is basically you're taking out a loan against your own property that effectively they're saying, unlike making a mortgage payment on it, we're gonna we're going to defer the debt until the house is finally sold. You know, so that's how it is as a loan. So say your home is worth five hundred thousand, they give you five hundred thousand, and they take your home as collateral. Right. Correct. And then you, you and get effectively this. you don't have to make a mortgage payment on that as if it were a regular mortgage. They defer the payment until the house is sold in the end, which could either occur at your death when you transfer the wealth of the value of the home to your uh, whoever your heirs are, or at a future point, you know, down the road if you choose to sell the home. So the advantage is is it strips the equity out of your house today, gives you access to the money now defers having to deal with it until such time as you either have passed away or many, many years down the road. The downside is, of course, if value of the house should happen to go down. Then what happens? And whoever is obligated to repay the loan could see the, the house actually defer to uh, the loanee instead of, you know, of the ownership. Oh, you mean so if Abby and her husband do this, and they're getting 500000 I just made that up. She didn't say how much. Yeah, they're not going to get 100%. No, course, yeah, they get whatever. like seventy five. I think, last time I heard, something like that, or even 50. So if the, if the, in 10 years from now, if that house goes down, then they got to pay that back? Yeah, of course. Well, that's ugly. Yeah, it's really ugly. So the, the idea of reverse mortgages is twofold. One, mm. people do this towards, you know, their elder older years because it affords them again an opportunity to take equity money, yeah. and give them the money to play with right now and say well it's not my problem you know i'll either be, <laughs> I'll gone, be gone or <laughs> my heirs will have to deal with it kind of thing That's right. and the concept is generally that normally speaking over time real estate prices will be stable enough or go up that the value of the home will be there and whoever takes possession of the property after the person who's taken the reverse mortgage has passed away, will be able to use the equity in the home to pay off the right. loan. But they will have to pay off the loan. Yeah, they do. Even if you're like 90 or something, have no money, what would happen? You would just do bankruptcy, I guess. It'd be, it'd sure. be ugly at any rate. But most of the cases in that case, if you're 90 and you took a home equity loan out or a reverse mortgage loan, it'll probably be your heirs who deal with it. Yeah. yeah. Can you actually die these days and have money without paying the government stuff? Oh, no. No, they, they, they take a hit when you when you go. Oh, yeah. You know, you always have to consider the fact that you're going to have Man. obligations and taxes. How's that even know, possible? How's that even possible? Well, you know, there are state taxes that the government confiscates, if you will. Hmm. You know, we don't care whether you're alive or dead. We're taking your money. That's <laughs> the government's position. <laughs> How do we ever get to this point? Oh, joy. Well, you know, this is what happens when a government has needs. You know what I mean? Think about it like, uh, well, a lot of ways to look at it, but any <laughs> analogy you can come up with, if you have a company, you know, that has lots of, lots of equity in it, it can afford to do lots of things. You know, you take Apple that's got tens of billions of dollars in cash money, it can afford to pay dividends on its stock. You know, why could it do that? Because it has the money. If you have a company that's bleeding money, not only can they not afford to pay dividends, but, you know, they may go the opposite way. So, you know, from a standpoint of a government that runs larger and larger debts every year, it needs more ways to continually garner new money. 
and it's going to be very creative in how it does that. Any way it can come up with a way to take a dollar from a person, they're going to get it. It's going to find a way to do it. Andrew used to use the term means testing that he always thought it was coming, and Social Security, Social Security, where they're going to cut, they're going to cut Patrick's uh, payments because the guy down the street needs it more than Patrick and that kind of idea. Uh, do you think well, they'll ever sure. do I mean, that? Again, you got a three trillion dollar hole in Social Security, and if the government gets to the point where it begins to face a default issue, you know, Congress seems to be pretty clear they don't want to touch Social Security because they don't want to aggravate. Oh man, it's those people that get it are the biggest voters. People will vote against so, you. You do that stuff, boy. <laughs> so you can't do that. You no, know, you can't, can't touch that. it. Yeah, can't do but that. if push comes to shove and it becomes what choice do we have here you know we simply don't have the money we either have to raise the retirement age or we have to do something well then means testing becomes sort of a let's say a, a mild approach to try and address the problem which is that the government stole the money out of the trust fund and spent it <laughs> no, so i hate it when that happens did you see where france they raised the retirement age i think two years People were out yep. in the streets for weeks. I don't know if they're still out there. They, they were and not that's happy. that's why they did it, they because France recognized the problem. They just simply don't have the money to pay the people that are retiring. So they're going to push back the retirement age. You know, again, this is a, an onset solution to an existing problem, which is government spending money it doesn't have. And whenever it does that and starts taking from pile A and pile B and piles that it does not own, you know, they didn't own that money in the Social Security. That was not theirs no, to spend. they took it. They just took it. So they took it, and now they're facing the problem. So now politically they have to address it. And what are they going to tell people? Thanks for paying in since you were, what, 18, and every job you've ever had, and that promise that all that money confiscated every week out of your paycheck was sitting in an account. And when you retired, we'll kick it back to you. Don't worry. It's well, good. now that you're there, we have to admit to you that we don't have your money. So... We're going to ask you to wait a couple more years to retire, or we're going to apply those means testing situations and say, well, you know, your neighbor needs it more than you, so do do the right thing as an American and accept less of your own money back. I don't think they get away with somebody that. somebody else needs it. To me, that's you know, like, it's like, like the thief saying, <laughs> I stole Patrick's money because he doesn't need it, so I don't have to pay him back That's right because I needed it more than he does. That's nonsense. Well, before we go, this whole idea, I think it's it, – what it – the Treasury is about $1.5 trillion per year in the red. Is that close in that neighborhood? That's interest payments. Yeah, but I mean, what about the deficit each year? Oh, yeah. About the same. Okay. And then interest payments are close to a trillion and a half. So is there any way, I mean, you would have to cut government spend. I mean, what would you, well, there are millions <laughs> and millions of government employees. I guess you'd get rid of half of them. You know, that would do it. Sure. Yeah. You could default on all the government employees and tell them you're screwed. Yeah, you're, you're screwed. You know, tens of thousands. How many people? What is it? Uh, I don't know how many they have. 30%? What's the, the percentage of the population that works in some way or another for the federal government? For the government? I, think, yeah. I think it's about 30%. So you're going to tell about a third of the American public that, you know, sorry, your retirement account is busted and we don't have the money. You're beat. I don't think that's going to hold up very well. I have said this before. Uh, I think the last couple shows, I do not believe there's any way that we can now politically or congressionally address the debt situation to make any fundamental changes. We're past that you point. You just can't do it. So they this are just going to print do. and borrow more money. As Andy say, yeah. 
And he said, you can keep doing it until they run out of zeros. Remember his famous line? <laughs> I mean, even if the government stops spending every dollar it spends, every dollar, you know, it doesn't spend a dime on anything going forward. Right. It still couldn't pay off the debt. So, you know, I, I don't see that as possible. Obviously, the government can't stop spending money on everything. So there's not enough to cut. There's not enough amongst the billionaires to take their money to pay for it. There's not enough uh, additional taxes that can be raised from the general public. There just is no method left. There's no way to. There's no combination of reducing spending and raising interest so and raising back, taxes. There's nothing. So back to your original idea, uh, it feels like they're just going to keep doing what they're doing until people stop wanting the dollar. <laughs> they're just going to keep yeah. doing it, right? That's what they're going to do. They'll just keep printing the crap out of money until, yeah. you know, People say, a oh, dollar wait a buys yeah. what a dime does. Yeah. What, what, what are we going to do? I mean... And I just don't think people should be surprised by that. I mean, if we know that this is the situation now, anticipating that makes perfect sense. Yeah. And this is where I would say there is almost an obligation amongst the citizenry now to own something in their wealth that is not tied to this paper U.S. dollar. If you're not positioned today with a minimal percentage of your assets in a physical form not tied to the U.S. dollar, you are ignoring the anticipation of this dollar weakness that is inevitable under the current environment, which, again, I just don't see any way that it's going to change. No. Well, that's the, the good news is this is what you do for a living. So, I mean, you've picked a good place. It, you could be selling, you know, <laughs> widgets. You know, nobody wants them. So, yeah, yeah gold and Well, silver. the good news for Americans, at least, is that they, as long as that reserve status, which takes us right back to the beginning of this conversation, yes, sir. as long as that dollar's reserve status remains strong, then our dollar, even though it's going to be weakening going forward, it won't look like a third world nation's currency that implodes completely. But again, this is why I get very concerned when things happen geopolitically that begin to chip away right. at dollar's relative strength around the world because it's the only thing hmm. preventing America from looking like, you know, Argentina. Because these dollars uh, have to go somewhere and if they stop going these places, then you just have too many here chasing the same oh, port of money. Oh my goodness, right. it would be horrific. Mm -hmm. yeah. Look, Remember what happened in 1971 is a perfect example. Nixon removes the gold and silver standard from the dollar, makes that world announcement. Yes, sir. The U.S. was flooded with U.S. dollars almost instantaneously. Boom. And for the next several years, everybody who could tried to get rid of as many of their dollars as holdings as they could. They had to sustain some, but they tried to reduce their percentage of holdings and move into other currencies and that flood of money that poured back into the U.S. sent inflation soaring. All up through the 70s. 18%. 18% up into, what, 81 when gold was, what, 850 About 1980, right? Yeah, and finally, we got the peak. And gold wow. moves from $35 to 100 in 1977 to 860 by 1980. So think percentage-wise what that was. You take a $35 item... And in 10 years, you move it to an $860 item. Yeah. Even the $100 from 77 to 860 it's an 8,000% increase. That's how quickly it happened because of an influx of massive amounts of U.S. dollars because people did not want to hold dollars around the world. Mm. This is our potential issue looming out there mm. at any given moment. If the world says, that's it, 
We've reached that point. And we it, lost confidence. It wasn't a shortage We're of out. gold. It was simply losing confidence in the dollar. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it yeah. had nothing to do with the supply of gold. <laughs> it had to do, to do with it. a lot more money uh, coming into an economy at too rapid a pace. I can remember the day uh, I, I was interviewing, and now his name is going to escape me. Who wrote uh, How to Live an Unfree in a Free World? Um, you know you know what I'm saying? How to Be Free in an Unfree World? Um, I almost had it. Anyway, yeah. he was a libertarian guy. Um, oh, anyway. I'll come up with it before we go. And he told me it was 1977. He said, buy gold, Patrick, during a commercial. Um, Henry, Harry, Harry Brown, Harry Brown. Oh, Harry Brown, Harry Brown. Course, so I was interviewing him on KLBJ Radio in 77. One of the original libertarians. Yeah, libertarian. He was a man's libertarian. And he said, I think gold was like $150 or something. He said, Patrick, yeah, gold right. is going to really go up in the next few years. He told me that. Well, I'll tell you what. I, I believe the same thing right now about Do silver. You? Really? I think its price is so ridiculously suppressed. Wow. And I think the difference between its value and its current price are a wide gap wow. that will be altered. I think we'll see a, a, a movement toward reality. Well, okay, let's give a little plug then for this for uh, the pre-65 coins in real world of money. So what else do you have there? You've got pre-65 Dimes, quarters, and halves, right? Yep, lots of the mint condition old silver dollars because I think as long as we're going to be paying, you know, for circulated ones 100% over melt, we might as well look at them in mint condition where they are, you know, $100, $200 of coins. I mean, they're Ooh. ridiculously inexpensive. And what year are you talking? Um, this is pre 35, right? Mint right. condition. Right, so they go coins. from 1878 to 1935, the Morgan and Peace dollars. Wow. And then for those that are spending larger quantities of money that are reducing the volume, weight, and space, the pre-33 gold coins are exactly what one would want in that you can acquire $100,000 worth of pre-33 gold coins, and that would represent, you know, a couple row boxes of NGC-graded coins, something you could clearly pick up with two hands and walk out the door with. As opposed and to easy to hide, hundred thousand dollars worth of silver would probably weigh two hundred pounds. Yeah, easy to hide these uh, these coins that are graded in the plastic, right? And because they're yep. worth they're worth some money, and they're easy to hide, and they're easy to make sure nobody takes them, which is key. You could buy top quality mint condition original twenty dollar gold pieces these days for between twenty five and twenty eight hundred dollars a coin, hmm. which is amazing. I mean, you know. Uh, again, considering the fact that they haven't minted these things for close to 100 years, they melted about 90% of them back in the 30s. And moving forward, this proliferation of paper money has changed their value from their face value status of $20 to where they are today at $25 or $2,600. And this question comes up, Fred, from people t from time to time. Uh, uh, we'll kind of end on this is this idea... So if things get really wonky, do you think there's always, always is a tough word, but a, a, a market for somebody to sell these things five years from now or 10 years from now if they need cash, they need dollars? I would, I would think so. Oh. I, I think the market, especially for the most common types, is always going to be viable uh, because the situation with the dollar isn't going to dissipate anytime soon. And I think the demand will probably grow significantly as more people become aware of the discrepancy between paper money and sound money's value. And it becomes more and more obvious to people as the years go by. Sometimes you just have to live long enough to be able to see this stuff. But 
you know, a little bit of uh, retrospective viewing will, I think, make the case pretty clear. Here's a final question that just popped in. We'll grab it as long as you're here. So is Fred on the same question? So is Fred on the same question that I am that if or if or should I say when we go to a 100% digital world of currency that all the $100 bills that we paid other countries and dictators will flood back into America. They will have the biggest boom in world history until the day that they could shut it down and say paper dollars or toilet paper. So he's saying if they did a CBCD thing... Right, what he, happens to all the paper that already is out but there? But they're not going to well, outlaw paper when they do that. Well, I would imagine they that they would probably have a transition It'd where they would maybe you know, do like a military script cutoff date kind of thing. Five and say, years or 10, whatever. Yeah, you've got to convert this into that digital or it's automatically converted for you, deposit it within a federal institution that we regulate and we will take whatever value you deposit, which causes its own problems because a lot of the cash that's out there, you know, we know is not reported and the billions that have been stolen in, you know, massive amounts of cash. I mean, every time we have a war and we fly planes with billions of dollars in cash and one of these planes disappears and yep. they can't account for a billion here, a billion there. So think about all that money floating around in actual back. physical cash. If they were to do it and say, you know, here's a period of time and you just simply deposit that money in any banking institution and it'll automatically be converted into this new CBDC, that'll solve the problem. And then at some point the cutoff will occur and they'll define that that $100 bill is no longer legal currency. I think that would create a very interesting problem. I think the time frame would have to be so, more than five so years. So to the emailer's but, question, if they went to a CB, Central Bank Digital Currency, and left the hundreds, they've got to leave them for a while. You just can't cut them off. I mean, that, No, again, I would think it would be a five-year, ten-year right. time frame. They so would have to do, do you think conversion. he's correct with assuming these hundreds are going to come back into this country and it'll be a boom here? I think that's a good, good likelihood. Um, you know, as this starts to unfold, I would imagine that a lot of people would try to get rid of their dollars as not to have to deal with this, yeah. either converting it into another currency or perhaps buying gold and silver with it. You know, I, I have watched whenever mm. countries uh, are facing economic uncertainty, there seems to be a default. Like, look at China. They've been very quietly accumulating very large quantities of gold. Oh, baby. I mean, very oh, large. Yeah. Uh, and and a more lot than they're telling us, too, the word is out in the street, right, that they're just not being honest about how much they have, which... Well, you know. they're doing it without using government money. So they're doing ah. it through private private funds. So they get to do the same accumulation but don't have to report it. I see. Yeah, like, the, uh, like a BlackRock thing or Vanguard and all these... Like, exactly. What they yeah, do. Because yeah. the rule says is if you're a government, China, oh. buying gold... You have to register that. You have to tell us how much you have, and we need to keep records. But if you're a private entity buying for China, well, you know. Oh, that's where this meme comes from, that they've got a lot more than they claim. Because they get to George Soros of China. He said, you know, buy $10 billion worth of gold here. Just keep it for us. (laughs) Whatever. Very tricky, right? Very tricky biz. Why are are countries accumulating massive hundreds of tons of gold? Because they know what's going on. That's what they do. Why are people looking at alternative methods of, of currency? Why are cryptos even a thing? Right. You know, I had somebody send me something lately that uh, 
the, the diamond people are now trying to come up with a diamond-backed dollar. You oh, know, good. A, oh, a good. currency that they're going to back with diamonds and allow people to trade with this paper note that is backed with diamonds. And why are all these things popping up? It's because people are beginning to question the reasonableness <laughs> of the current environment of an unbacked U.S. dollar. And I, I again, go back to this point where what got me in this business was that 1971 change in the value of money against the gold and silver. I question why, after 200 years of a currency system backed by gold and silver, why were we now making that huge change? Were we trying to suggest that the people in power in the 1970s knew more than the guys did in the 1790s? I'm sorry, I will put Thomas Jefferson and James Madison against Richard Nixon any day of the week. <laughs> but well, what was the difference between in 1933? Uh, they took, they just called them the gold then, but there was still a gold gold back dollar? There was still a gold standard. Oh, standard. All they did in 33 was two things. They stopped producing physical gold coins, but the redeemability clause was still available in theory that money was backed by gold. It just said that you can't ask for it. Oh, wait a minute. Oh, so in 1946, the year I was born, my dad couldn't go in and exchange a $100 bill for gold, but they say Correct. it was still backed. Not. But they, they were just cooking the books. The right? promise, the promise existed that that $100 bill still had $100 worth of gold in the treasury. You just couldn't ask for it. Were they lying? But up to 33. Were they lying? Yes. <laughs> Dumb question. Yeah. Of the little by little, over the decades, they began to slowly reduce the right. quantity they had against the money system until right. it was about the 1950s and 60s. They began to say, well, we're going to officially kind of say we're not going to keep 100% anymore at this point. We'll make it 80%, and 70%, 60%, 50%. And by the time the 70s rolled around, it was just so absurd to even pretend because people could look at the amount of money that existed and they could count what was supposed to be in Fort Knox right. and say, well, wait a minute, these numbers are not close. Suppose is a good term, longer. right? Andy used to say, you know, he, he says, there's your gold and there's four windows, remember, on on the, on the room. And everybody was looking, well, that's my gold. Because they, they trade it gold. and they lease it. And we have no idea if these 8,000 tons even exist. We don't really know. Presuming that they do, how much does that represent against the amount of money in the world? And we knew that the oh, gap well. was wider and wider. So by the 70s, it just became pointless. Just ridiculous. And if for a moment, for a moment, they simply attempted to switch it to silver, but that didn't even it, work. So then they said, ah, we can't even do that. I remember about 10 years ago with Andrew, we, we estimated the money supply and we did the gold and, and the whole thing, you know? And it was about $50,000 an ounce. $50,000 yeah. per and ounce. And now it's pretty, uh, be, be 100 now, I mean, or more. And what would be a problem with that, with gold being that high? I mean, that would pose well, all kinds of problems, wouldn't it? It causes all sorts of problems. So you have to look at gold as a warning light okay. um, against the environment of the Western economy. So if gold is going up, it's an indicator there's a problem. Right, right. And the problem is, is that the value of the money that's out there uh, is not stable. It's being reduced. Otherwise, that chunk of gold or that $20 gold coin would not be appreciating in value. Mm -hmm. Why does a $20 gold coin cost more than $20? Why is an ounce of gold not $35 anymore? Why isn't it even $350 like it was in 1998 or 99? Why has it jumped from 1200 to 1800 since 2008? Why does gold keep going up in price when it's the same quantity, the same asset, 
nothing has changed in the gold itself. It's the number of dollars against it that constantly changes. That's the thing. So if gold prices are climbing rapidly, it's a warning indication that the value of paper is going down. And if people don't see that as a concern, they're missing the big picture. Because if people start to see and recognize the value of paper going down, what's going to happen? What's going to happen is their willingness to hold that paper is going to go down as well. So they're going to want to move away hmm. from those paper notes into whatever, either another currency or physical gold and silver, which is going to perpetuate the cycle. But would you classify gold prices rapidly going? It doesn't seem rapid to me, but I only look at it once a week. But 18, has it been a rapid? How, how do you turn using that term rapid rise in gold? Well, I wouldn't say it's rapid. rapid I would say it's fairly consistent. Consistent, and it has chances to kick considerably very quickly, because again, the confidence now is a bigger part of yeah. the established value of money right. than it used to be. So, confidence is something that doesn't have a financial backing to it. Confidence is a completely psychological sure, sure. environment. And if you, we we talked about at the beginning with these people really arguing that we're going to get into a hot war with these guys, you know, NATO, the U.S., that would be very bullish for gold, right? That would be... Yeah, very that, problematic for yeah, the dollar. So, yeah, very you know, we need to keep an eye on what happens around the world. We, keep, we need to keep an eye on these coalitions like the BRICS or China and Russia working together against the dollar. Oh, yeah. These are issues that are disconcerting for the future of the U.S. dollar disconcerting value. Disconcerting is a wonderful word. <laughs> And this is just what we know, Fred. I mean, we have no idea what Putin and Xi and these people are doing in Iran, right? This is what we know. I mean, we barely know what the Fed is doing. Well, yeah. I mean, we we have five hundred billion dollars worth of stuff that we don't even know who bought it or did they just let it expire? You know, today from last week, five hundred billion. Boy, Ron Paul. Yeah, Ron Paul was on it when he wanted to, you know, audit the Fed, but that that never happened, did it? No. Nope. Never. Okay, kiddo. Congress couldn't agree. Thanks. Okay, tell folks. Let's see. They you can talk to anybody at your place or talk to you if you're around. Yep. And they can ask for you or ask for. Call Roger. us at 800-878-2646. The website uscoincapital.com, spelled with an O L. O L. Capital. Capital. And uh, feel free to reach out to us. Uh, I remember that. I remember. I think that picture you have up there is when <laughs> we were. At Andy's daughter's wedding in in Dripping Springs. Uh, this actually was done here locally. Oh, it was. Um, oh, sorry. I don't know why I yeah, thought that actually, was. Andy's it's daughter. out of my yard. <laughs> that's the that's the sea pines, uh, oh, South Carolina pine tree I, I behind took me. That for the oak trees in Dripping Springs. Yeah. Oh, it's a great shot. All right, kiddo. Thanks for everything, and my best to you. Appreciate you coming on the show once a month. And thank you, thank you, thank yeah, you. Forgot okay. it was the first, but I'm glad we were. Here. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I call Fred. You know. Uh, and 10 minutes after, I said, Fred. He said, is it March? I said, yeah, it is. All right, Kato, thank you. Take care of yourself. US Be Coin well, Cap- Patrick. Bye-bye. U.S. Coin Capital and uh, Fred Jaszewski, his uh, phone number, 800-878-2646. Talk to anybody there. You can ask for Fred if he's around. He'll talk to you. And uh, as we tell you often during the week when we when we mention uh, Fred's company is um, – you know, um, he's not going to try to sell you a bunch of stuff that you don't need. He'll talk to you, figure out what your deal is, you know, what's your, <laughs> what's your modus operandi, what, what you might 
want to do or not do and work with you and, and get you into some real um, real money. Uh, numismatic coins, uh, gold and silver, pre-65, you know, the whole thing we talk about. All right, kids. Excuse me. Just uh, need some water. It's uh, We are one hour away, and we're going to be going to Aust, um, where are we going? New Zealand. And we are going to ask uh, Mark and Samantha Bailey, who are probably in the top 10 list of people who understand this whole virus thing. And we are going to ask them this new, not new, but the increased meme out there. You've probably seen the stories the last week, and they're, they're all over it, that they're going to want to convince Americans that a lab leak in China perpetrated the COVID experience. And we're going to ask the Baileys, if that were true, is that even possible? And you'll be surprised at their answer. I, I don't know what their answer is, but I think I know. But it doesn't matter because it's just crazy. So, we're going to talk to them about a lot of things. So join us at 1 o'clock, about an hour from now. Send in some emails. If you have questions about the whole virus thing, email Patrick, OneRadioNetwork.com. Sorry, our 800 line got kind of hooked up with the freeze-pocalypse we had here about two weeks ago, and they're working on fixing that wire. Literally broke the wire. So, you know, they, they got a lot of stuff they're repairing after. We had a huge ice storm here. All right, kids, we'll see you in one hour. Thanks for your ongoing support, uh, and uh, let us know if we can help. Questions about any of the products that we promote. Uh, Patrick at OneRadioNetwork.com. Take care. Thanks to Fred. We'll see you in an hour, 1 o'clock Central Time. Broadcasting from the beautiful Hill Country in Texas, this is OneRadioNetwork.com.